Well, as you see up on the screens, we're starting a new sermon series together as a church that's going to carry us through till Advent. And the series is called Wildfire. I think we're all pretty familiar with uh, wildfires as of late. Uh, For some of us, it's been the thing that has nagged at our asthma or different breathing issues when we had the fires in hope. For others, it's been the thing that has ruined our vacation plans as our campgrounds burned down or maybe our livelihood or our vacation rental has been threatened. But wildfires are something that can also be a good thing. They're a natural part of our environment. And when wildfires take place, it allows for new growth and new life to happen in nature. But while they're natural, sometimes they are unnatural. And they're often scary whether natural or not because they're usually unplanned. They're often uncontrolled, and they are definitely unpredictable as winds change and things happen. The fires can happen all over the place and change direction. Well, the reason we're calling this series Wildfires is because the gospel is like a wildfire. The good news of Jesus is something that is powerful and has the ability to move. And while at first it might seem threatening, it has the ability to bring new life and growth. And when we study the early church, we see that it actually grew quite quickly and expansively. And in, for not everyone was this a welcomed thing. When we look at ancient history, we see that the early church and its expansion were often something that would make people uncomfortable, particularly in the case of the Jewish people and the Romans. They were antagonistic towards the church because they saw it as a threat. They saw it as the side of the wildfire, which we can't figure out how to deal with this, and so we're going to try. But while we're out stomping it down over here, it's growing over there. And now, this became a problem. It became such a problem, in fact, that the Jewish leaders and the Roman leaders decided they were going to not just kind of try to push these Christians and the church off to the side, but they were going to fully extinguish it by killing its leaders and chasing after all of its sort of radical members. And that's where we're picking up today as we're going to study Acts chapter 12, verses 1 to 24. We're going to see this moment where the wildfire is spreading, but perhaps, perhaps it's going to end. Now, we, of course, have the the good fortune, I don't know what the right expression is, we have the luck of being on this side of history and being able to look back and and see it as something that maybe isn't that threatening. We look and we say, well, the church actually did continue to grow after this moment. But while we're reading our scripture today, what I would love for you to do is just take that bit of knowledge out of your brain and just step into the life of an early Christian. You've experienced what Jesus can do for you. You've come to a saving faith in him, and your life's been turned upside down. And as you decide to follow this guy who tells you that he can lead you towards a thriving life, he ends up leaving you, at least in physical presence. Jesus ascends up into heaven, and you're left to go and spread the good news. But as you do that, people are coming, and they're trying to persecute you. They're making fun of you at best, and some might even be trying to kill you. Now, go. Now go. Okay, well, I can do that. 
my leaders, Peter, John, they're headed out and they're sharing the good news. And we're seeing that they're doing some pretty cool things. They're bringing healing into people's lives. Demons are being casted out. And the church is caring for those in our community. They're feeding them. They're answering uh, their basic and practical needs. This is all good news. I think I can do this. But then we come into this moment that we read about today in Acts chapter 12, verse 1 to 4. Let's pick up here. It says, it was about this time when all this is happening. Imagine you're seeing all this, wondering what to do. It's about this time that King Herod decides to arrest some who belong to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with the approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Imagine this, just for a moment. You're excited, your leaders are doing great things, and now, out of sort of the top 11 or 12 leaders, some are out of the community, another one has just been beheaded, and your prime leader, the person you see next after Jesus, is now in chains, guarded by squadrons of the enemy so that they can kill him in a few days' time. Imagine the prayer that these people would have been praying as they wait for the bad news. Well, good news comes in verse 6. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers. Bound with two chains and sentries stood guard at the entrance, suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. Peter's seen visions up until this point. We know that God has given Peter little insights into things he was going to do. And so Peter thinks he's still sleeping as this is all taking place. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that this was really happening. And so they passed the first and the second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It was open for them by itself, and they went through. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and the servant named uh, Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed that she ran back without opening it. She exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door, they saw him and were astonished. 
Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then he went to another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion amongst the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Then Herod went to Judea to, from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He had been quarreling with some of the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they now joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to those people. They shouted, this is the voice of God, not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued to spread and to flourish. There's a lot here, and it's an interesting bit of history as we engage with this because it's so far out of what our day-to-day -day life uh, experience is. But there is something in here that is helpful for us to walk through, to consider in terms of what are we to do as people of faith. But to understand that, we really have to understand the background of what's taking place beyond just what's sort of at the top level. So here we have this guy who's been installed into a place of power, and his name's Herod. He's the guy in charge over the, reason, uh, over the region. And this is Herod, who is the grandson to the Herod we read about in the Christmas story. This is the grandson of the man who had all sorts of children murdered because he perceived a threat to his power and establishment. And so now we have his grandson here in power. His dad was in power for a little bit of time, but his grandfather killed him too. So he's come up and he's come into this place uh, through political jockeying, and now he's in charge of Judea and Samaria, and he is an ancient politician's politician. This guy likes to schmooze. But not only does he like to schmooze and throw parties, he is going to do whatever it takes to stay in power. And so that means part of what he's going to do is be willing to kill people. And sometimes it's not even people who he perceives threaten him. It's people who he thinks threaten his constituents. Herod has this sort of soft spot for the Jews that he's leading. And so he says to himself, I'm going to sort of suck up to these people. And as he tries to figure out how to do that, as a good political leader, he looks for all the sort of friction points that are happening for his constituents, and so he wants to address those. And as he looks at his constituents, the Jews, he sees that there's this divisive faction. There's this group of Jews who are going their own way, and they're starting to teach a new and reframed understanding of who God was. And so he says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to kill them. I'm going to go after those people for them so that they don't have to do what they don't want to do. He knows the history. He sees what happened with their leader, Jesus, and he says, I'm going to finish the initial plan. And so we see in verse 1 to 3 that Herod captures the key leaders. He 
there's sort of a couple of Jesus' closest buddies, right? We know there's Peter and John. Now, for whatever reason, Herod doesn't grab a hold of John, but he grabs a hold of his brother, James, and then he grabs a hold of Jesus' other buddy, Peter. And first he begins by beheading James, and he beheads him with a sword. Now, to us, we just go, okay, that must be how they beheaded people, but there's some subtext that's lying beneath this that gives us some cues into what Herod's trying to do. In the Mishnah, which is a very important Jewish text, it says that people who were apostate should be put to death by the sword. And so when uh, Herod decides to kill James, what he says is he says, this person is a religious heretic. This person is out to deny what the Jews believe, and so I will cut off his head and do what I have to do. With this, Herod gets a little bit of power. He gets a little bit of favor from the Jews. And so he says, okay, now I'm going to do what I have to do with Peter. And really, Peter's the troublesome one. He's the one who's leading the church through all of this. Unfortunately for Herod, though, it's the uh, Passover feast time. And so it would be in bad taste for him to kill a Jew at that time. And so he decides, okay, I'm going to sit and I'm going to wait. And maybe this is a good thing. Maybe it's going to make people shake in their boots. Maybe it's going to drive home a little bit more of what I can do. And so what I'm going to do is make sure this thing happens. And so I'm going to surround Peter with all these guards. Because, you know, that Jesus guy, he escaped after there were just a couple guards in front of the rock that was rolled in front of the tomb. And so I'm going to chain him up, slap him behind a few sets of iron bars, and we're going to wait until it's time to behead him too. At this point, imagine being the church. Imagine being these people who are trying to figure out what to do. We're supposed to follow Jesus. He's made such a difference in our lives, but the circumstances of life say that we should do anything else. What are we going to do? You can't go in there. We can't bust out Peter. He's behind a whole bunch of sets of iron bars. He's chained up and surrounded by guards. There's nothing that we can do. The Romans, the Jews, they're the powerful ones. We're just the church. So what are we going to do? I guess we could pray. I guess we could pray. That's how we read into this we read into this well i guess we'll just pray because i think that's often what we do when we face difficult circumstances we we're, we're raised and trained to see ourselves as the source of all of our answers we're told that it's within you get up pull yourself up and go tackle whatever life problems you face and so we go and we try to do all those things and then if it doesn't work we say i guess it's time to pray anyone else with me in that is it just me I mean, that's me all of the time. I, I often will go to what can I do? And then, oh, this situation isn't working. I guess I will pray. For a lot of us, it, prayer seems like a last resort, a sort of hopeless with maybe just a little bit beyond hopeless appeal to something, to someone. And sadly, 
we lose sight of the fact of the powerful tool that prayer really is. Being able to pray wasn't a last-ditch effort for these followers of Jesus. It wasn't just something they hoped might do something. It was something that they believed was the most powerful source of hope in their world. Notice in verse 5, it says, So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The church prayed, and they prayed earnestly. Now, the Greek word that's translated to earnest here, it comes from another word which means to strain or to stretch. If we were to think of another place in Scripture that talks about someone praying earnestly, we can picture Jesus in the garden before he goes to be crucified. We're told that Jesus prayed earnestly. He prayed to God with such an intensity. He said, God, I want this burden to be taken from me. Is there any way else to accomplish what I'm here to do? And as he strained and as he stretched every fiber of his being, what took place? His blood vessels burst and he sweat blood. This is the intensity for what the church was doing. They weren't just saying, hey God, I guess this situation sucks, and so if you don't mind, maybe take care of this thing, and I guess we're just going to go on the way until we figure out what's next to do. No, they went before God and they said, God, you are the one in power. You are the one in control. We've seen what you have done and accomplished on the cross and through your death and resurrection. We've seen that you've ascended to heaven. We believe in only you and we know that you have the power to overcome Herod and all of his followers because we've seen what only you can do. The church prayed with a deep conviction for God to move. And we see what happens in verse 6 to 10. We see that the night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping, bound up in chains, with centuries standing guard, and suddenly an angel of the Lord appears. He wakes up Peter and he says, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter does, and so he wraps himself up, and he ends up walking out of this guarded jail cell which would eventually lead to the tomb and then he moves he's free as he walks out the front door which opens on its own he's able to walk down the street and take off to go and sit with those who are in need this is such an incredible act that we see that at first he doesn't believe it and then those he goes to don't believe it remember when he knocks at the door Hey, it's Peter, let me in. Hey, it's Peter, let me in. Nah, we're crazy. That's not, that, that's, not, that's not Peter, he can't be. We know what's going on. Guys, seriously, it's cold. I'm out here on my own. Guys, it's Peter. Why is this a shocker? Why is this, a, I want to know why this is a shocker. I mean, they just saw Jesus crucified buried for three days and resurrected and they're surprised that peter who hasn't even been killed yet could come to the door this is our surprise when we approach prayer often we look at the situations that we're faced and we say hey i'm going to go pray to god but then we're surprised when god moves 
The truth that we see here in this passage that should encourage every one of us today is that when powerless people pray, powerful things happen. When powerless people pray, powerful things happen. This happens all over the place as we go through Scripture, but being particularly here in this passage. These people who could not do anything on their own did not rely on their own strength. They went to the one who had the strength to overcome death and sin and every barrier that man can build. This is a pretty exceptional thing to consider when we face the different circumstances that we have in our lives. It should really cause us to pause and question the attitude by which we decide to approach God when we face difficulties. Because if we truly believe in the God of Scripture, we should truly be able to believe that miracles can happen when we go to Him. Often our circumstances, particularly our difficult ones, help us to lose perspective on reality. Oftentimes, especially pessimists and people who would say they're realists would say, well, no, we actually see the truth when those situations happen. But sadly, that's not true. As we face difficult situations, we end up losing sight of what only God can do. Now, I don't believe that God orchestrates every bad situation that happens, but I do believe he allows every bad situation to take place so that he can teach us a proper perspective of who he is and what he can do. One of the biggest lies that we believe as Christians is that God will never give us more than we can handle on our own. That's a load of garbage. Like, I don't know where that comes from. It certainly doesn't come here from this text because as we see, this was more than any believer could possibly imagine. I mean, their leaders are being chopped down and imprisoned. They're facing the greatest, bloodiest execution streak of one religious believer that ever take, uh, religious group that ever takes place. And they don't sit there and go, well, I guess we can handle this on our own. No, they are reminded by the situations that they face, that God will give us and allow us more than we can handle, but never more than he can handle. The situations we face then ought to be reflected upon in light of what we see in this passage and text, that while we might face what's bigger and beyond our control, we are one with the God who's bigger than that. As followers of Jesus, we're never abandoned, we're never alone, and God is in control. In Deuteronomy 31, verse 6, it says, Be strong and courageous. This is a passage that faces uh, the, the Israelites uh, long before this took place, but it still rings true. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them. This is us hearing about what God wants to speak over his people, because the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you, leave you or forsake you. Jesus later speaks to this very same thing before he goes to the cross. He says, you know what? One of these days I'm going to leave you. But the Father in heaven is going to send to you the Spirit. And he's going to be an advocate with you. He's the Spirit of truth. It says the world, he says, the world cannot accept him 
because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you may know him, for he lives with and in you. So I will never leave you as orphans. I will always come to you. Even in the most difficult of circumstances, God wants to reveal himself to us. God wants us to know how much he can do. And he has the power to intervene in whatever situation we face. The question is, will we go to him when we face it? The reminder in this text is about the power of prayer. The power of prayer. What can prayer really do? The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective, James writes. He says it's able to accomplish much. What can it accomplish? Well, it can drop chains off a man who is surrounded by centuries of guards and allow him to walk to safety. The power of prayer can raise the dead to life in a way that only God can do. Why do we have trust in the power of prayer, though? Because we've already seen what God can do. Far beyond what he does here for Peter, he does for all of us through what he accomplished on the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, when he was crucified and rose again, we're told that he brought victory not just over uh, the death that he faced, but over all the power of sin and death in the world. And we're told that what's happening now is that we live in a place between that victory and when the fullness of God's kingdom will break through. One day Jesus will return to earth and bring the fullness of his victory in, but in the meantime, he invites us to be a part of the breakthrough. And he invites us through prayer. Prayer is an opportunity for us to climb up into heaven and grab little pieces of the kingdom and bring them back down. Karl Barth once said, he said, in Christian prayer, we find ourselves at the very seat of government, at the very heart of the mystery and purpose of all occurrence. When we go in prayer, what, he's, what Karl Barth is trying to say is that we have an opportunity to take authority. As children of God who have been loved and saved by him, we have an opportunity to go and sit next to God in his throne room, maybe not physically, but spiritually in prayer. And then we have the opportunity to join with him in inviting him to exercise his power and control on earth as it is in heaven. This is why we need to pray earnestly. This is why we need to pray continuously as the early church did. Because we're in the midst of a spiritual battle. And battles cannot be won when someone just goes out and looks at a battlefield and says, yeah, that's a pretty bad situation. I'm going to take off. Battles can't be won when the soldiers decide to sit down and have a powwow and never leave their circle. Battles are won when the soldiers get up in the name of their king and advance against an enemy with all the power and might that that king 
has bestowed. The Apostle Paul says, our struggle is never against flesh and blood, but it's against the rulers, authorities, and against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. As a church, I think one of our greatest weaknesses, and I'm not speaking about global church, I'm speaking about our church, one of our greatest weaknesses is that we are not faithful in prayer. I'm not saying there's not people who pray regularly. I'm not saying that there's not people who who pray earnestly, but on the whole, I think oftentimes what we are disposed to is to pray about things once or twice and then let it go. Rarely do we have the conviction to sit earnestly and continuously and strain for the cause of God to be unleashed on this earth. If we genuinely want to see things like the gospel expand in the city of Abbotsford and our surrounding communities, we're going to have to pray. We're going to have to struggle. We're going to have to take part in an epic battle which wages war. There's another place in scripture where we read about how an angel of the Lord appears to someone 21 days after prayer. Why? Because that angel of the Lord was in the midst of battle. There's a spiritual reality beyond what we can see, and sometimes it takes intensity and time for us to engage in, for us to see the reality take place. Samuel Chadwick, who's an English preacher, once said this. He said, intensity is a law of prayer. It's a law of prayer. He says, there are blessings of the kingdom that are only yielded to the violence of the vehement soul. Stop for a moment. How intense, how passionate is your soul against the enemy? How intense, how passionate is your love for the things of God? Do those things line up with the way you pray? Do those things line up with the way God wants to move. Well, if they don't, I would encourage you to really consider how serious you are about the things that you're concerned about. If you're really concerned about a situation that's going on in the life of a family member or loved one, you should be praying with intensity earnestly, continuously seeking what God wants to do in their life. If you're concerned about our city or our province or our country or the state of the world, how intensely are you praying? Magnify the spiritual situation that must be occurring in that person's life or in that place and consider, am I matching that with the intensity of my prayer? This is what we ought to do question is how how do we pray powerfully how do we pray and see god move well i think it's very simple we go to god regularly and continuously with the things that trouble us the things that excite us the things we're hopeful for the things we're fearful against and we say amen amen's this word we like to use in the church we put it at the end of all our prayers but rarely do we ever give any thought to it 
In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. What does it mean? Well, amen, loosely translated, means so, uh, it is so or so be it. But that really doesn't actually adequate, adequately cover what it means. Amen is actually to say yes to something that is fixed and firm and true. Something that is immovable and is powerful in and of itself. And so when we say amen, we don't say, hey God, would it be so for you to do whatever I just asked you for? God, I've just given you my big list amen, please accomplish it. It's not like giving a, a, a kid or a spouse the grocery list and saying, please make it so. Bring home the groceries. No, this is us to say, hey God, here is all the burdens, here is all the pain, here is all my struggles, here's all my worries, here's all my hopes, here's all my dreams, here's all my passage. Now let what is true come true. Let your power come through. Let your will be accomplished on earth as it is in heaven. God, break through. This is the way that we ought to pray. Jesus says, you may ask for anything in my name and I will do it. That doesn't mean Jesus is going to answer whatever shopping lists we put through and then said, in Jesus' name, amen. What Jesus meant as he spoke those words is that whenever you pray in line with my character and my purpose, I will make sure it comes true. Peter Gregg, the, the creator of the prayer course, said, when we use our will to say yes to God's will, Miracles will occur. I'm really hopeful for miracles. I'm really hopeful for what God can do. I've seen God answer prayer. I've seen people healed. I've seen people's lives that were on terrible, hell-bound, awful, train-wrecked, destructive tracks turn around and be changed into people who love and know God and serve other people selflessly. I've seen God change situations that seem hopeless into places where there is beacons of light and hope. But in every single one of those instances, it has always been when the people of God have sincerely gathered and prayed for God's will to be so. But the good news is God is faithful and he is good. He's delivered on every promise that he's given us up until this point, and he promises that, yes, one day he will return. And the fullness of his goodness and kingdom will come through. There will be no more sadness, no more sorrow, no more pain, and every promise will be fulfilled. But in the meantime, he says, I want you to come through. I want you to partner with me in prayer so that I can continue to break out my kingdom until the time is right for that to be accomplished. I don't know what you're facing, what you're going through. I know some of your stories and some of the struggles and some of the pains that you're facing this week, but I hope that you know God is true and he is good and he plans to accomplish what is prayed in his name for the good of all those who love him. Let me leave you with this encouragement from Psalm 46. 
God is your refuge and strength. He is your ever-present help in times of trouble. Therefore, do not fear. Though the earth gives way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, the waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with surging. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her, and she will never fall, because God will help her break through one day. Though nations are in uproar, though kingdoms will fall, he will lift his voice. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So come and see what the Lord has done. He will make war cease. He will break the bows and shatter the spears of his enemy. And he will say, be still. Know that I am God. And I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The good news is the Lord Almighty is with us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are with us. We thank you that you have been faithful through generations. God, I thank you that you continue to move. And God, that it's not just places in history that we can hear these stories of your kingdom coming, but it is in our present reality in the days we face today. And God, I pray that we would be a people of prayer, that we would cling and hold uh, to the truth of who you are. God, we look forward to the day when every war will cease, when every bow and spear of your enemy will be shattered, when we will be invited into your calming presence so we can just be still and know the fullness of who you are. But in the meantime, God, I pray that we would be people who are passionate people of prayer, that we as a church would be known for being people who intercede on behalf of our friends and our neighbors and the world. And God, we would be people who would regularly climb up into your presence to bring bits of your kingdom down to earth. And God, we thank you that we can know that that can be accomplished because of who you are and what you do. God, we thank you for your goodness, for your faithfulness, and for your love. And we pray this all in your name, Jesus. Amen.